one of the things that privilege doesn't force us to do. Privilege forces us to be comfortable. Sacrifice forces us to do work, right? And like one of the things that we have to be willing to do is do the work. Welcome to the dismantle, creating community, not converts. Hello and welcome to The Dismantle, a show for community, not converts. I'm your host, Joey. Each week, we attempt to dismantle or take apart an issue that has or has the potential to be problematic in the church by having a dialogue with a guest who has insider experience with the issue. Now, we're not always going to agree, but we're definitely not going to argue because the goal is to gain understanding and perspective by sharing our views in a way that builds bridges and not barriers. And this week, our guest is Pastor Hank Johnson. Hank is a friend, mentor, at one point my camp counselor. He served in various camp settings, social justice work, and currently is the pastor of discipleship at Harrisburg Brethren in Christ in Harrisburg, PA, where he lives with his wife and two daughters. Hank, welcome to The Dismantle. Oh, I'm so excited to be here, Joey. Thanks for having me. No problem, I'm excited man. about this conversation, man. Yeah, it's been one that I've been really looking forward to ever since the show idea kind of came. Um, so real quick, Hank, how did you get introduced to church and faith? What's your background with all of that? Wow. Um, so I was born into a Christian family, but it was actually in Monrovia, Liberia, so in West Africa. Okay. And so one of the most fascinating things about my family was I have a, a very Muslim side of the family. One of my mm. grandparents was a Muslim chief. Um, so one of the funny things growing up was that I think my parents were always scared I'd be more attracted to Islam, right? So the joke in my family was that my parents started praying over me from the day I was born. Um, I I guess quickly about my faith, though, is that like what I was attracted to was the Muslim side of my family felt more communal. A lot of Christians were former slaves who had been in South Carolina and went back to Africa and started the country, which Mm -hmm. is why my name Henry Johnson doesn't sound very African. I was going to say. Because of that, it was a lot of power dynamics within that side of the family, Whereas the Muslim side felt more communal, but kind of getting back to our conversation that we're going to have today, that's been one of the growing points for me is because what I thought was very communal was actually a privileged position. Because you see, at the time I was the youngest grandkid, so I got a lot of privileges in that side of the family, whereas in the Christian side, I wasn't the youngest grandkid, you know? So I think that like, even what I saw as community was very different from a privilege I held, right? That I held as the youngest grandkid at the time. Um, the quote-unquote apple of my grandfather's eye. But anyway, I would say my introduction to faith would have been probably three stories. One was my grandfather, Muslim grandfather, actually passed away um, when I was about four or five. I used to go to his house, take naps with him. And I actually remember waking up and he was still laying there. Now, he was in about his mid-90s, so we would always take naps and then go play hide-and-seek or walk through his um, farm and pick fruits and um, yeah. So anyway, so I just woke up and I looked over and I saw him still laying there. I had no concept of death. Right. So I just thought he was still sleeping. Yeah. So about a couple of minutes of hiding. One of my uncles came in and was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm playing hide and seek, but grandpa won't wake up. Right. I remember my uncle recognizing, oh, wait, how long has he been there? I was like, I don't know. It seems like forever. But he recognized right away what had happened. Right. Because like I said, his father would have been in his 90s at that point. Wow. He didn't know how to have this conversation with me. So he just basically said, you sit here, called my parents and went and found out that my grandfather had actually passed away while we were sleeping. Right. Um, and even at four or five years old, I remember my mom then. Um, I mean, it may, might not be parenting one on one. I remember my mom sitting down talking to me about heaven and hell. Right. Like it, for her, this was a gospel opportunity. Right. Sure. 
at that point, it still didn't click for me. I just knew something had happened. Um, another turning point is that I, I realized that, recognized at his funeral, um, my grandmother wasn't allowed in and she had to sit in the back because she was a woman. And me at five years old got to sit in the front because I'm a man, right? And and so even though I couldn't like, again, give language to all these feelings I was experiencing, I knew something was off, right? And it just sure. didn't make sense to me. And when it came time for the burial, same thing. She was a woman. She had to stay behind. And I was allowed into the burial ground because I'm a man. So again, I had no language, but I just knew something was off. So whereas Islam had been attractive to me as a kid, that, that treatment of my grandmother that was so expected and, and done threw me off a little bit. Um, I think the, one of the other second big turning point was Civil War came to my country in 1989, left the country with my um, uh, Muslim side of the family, basically. Mm-hmm. I remember while we were in exile, you know, we stayed in refugee camps. We were immigrants. We were strangers, you know, in different cultures. But I remember when we finally settled in, a family friend, again, another privileged position of being part of a, a culture that ran a country was you had a lot of contacts. So when we finally left the refugee camp, we were, I remember staying with a family friend in a different country. And we would get letters from time to time from my parents giving us updates about you know what was happening in the war. And so <laughs> I remember going to sleep one night and I remember... We hadn't heard from my parents for a while, so I wake up in the middle of the night, and it's funny because when I tell this story to a Western audience, you know, I'm like, I'm not sure if it was a dream or not, right? When I tell this to someone from the Global South or Liberia or Africa in general, they're like, oh, no, 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 that was not a dream. This is what happened, you know? What I do remember for sure is I woke up in the middle of the night, and I saw an angel, right? And I remember being terrified, like everything you see in the Bible, and I remember, like, just thinking that, like, what the heck is happening? I'm so scared right now. And I don't remember the conversation, but I remember the two things I left the conversation with was, you know, do not be afraid. Your Heavenly Father is going to always take care of you. And the second thing I remember was, you know, your father has to go away now, but trust your Heavenly Father. He will always take care of you, right? So I remember thinking that, like, man, that's pretty significant, right? So the next morning when I woke up, I tried to explain this to my grandmother, And you have to understand that for Muslims, the last time something like this happened was the angel Gabriel coming to give uh, Muhammad the Quran, right? So angels don't just appear to little boys, right? So she kind of like just dismissed it and was like, oh, just eat your breakfast or whatever. I remember thinking, you know what? This is significant, you know? So then what I did was I wrote it down on a piece of paper. Like, I feel like I should remember this day, right? couple weeks go by, so we haven't heard from our parents. I was a very mischievous young kid, which is shocking to most people. <laughs> but I believe it. At some point, I realized that, like, man, my grandmom's holding out on me. So I actually locked myself in her bedroom, ripped the bedroom apart, not even looking what I was looking for, until I found a letter. Um, another interesting thing about my background was that my parents, because they were from influential families that helped rule the country, Uh, My mom's uncle was actually president of Liberia. He was assassinated in 1980. My dad, as part of that assassination to save his life, wasn't allowed to have a job, wasn't allowed to be involved in politics. So, like, my dad was basically forced to become a real estate person, you know. Um, But our privilege allowed him to do that because we owned a lot of property. But my dad didn't work necessarily. And because of that, 
Like, I got to spend a lot of time with him. He taught me to read and write. So I knew my parents' handwriting. So I recognized from a letter in my grandmom's room that this is my mom's handwriting. And in the letter, my mom explains how they had stayed behind to rebuild the country. They didn't want the violence, but they thought the violence would pass and it would be the leaders to help rebuild. Well, in the middle of all this, that my um, father, um, during the middle of the night, rebels had come in and had abducted my dad and she thought they were going to kill him. And she didn't know where he was, right? And what's fascinating is, instead of breaking down at that point, like, my, my gut reaction as a six-year-old was like, wait a second, why is that night familiar, right? Like, and I did some tracking with the date my mom had to put on it, the, let, the, the night she said they took my dad. And I was like, why is this familiar? Took the letter to my room, and won't you know that the, the night that, you know, I saw an angel, right, was the same night that the rebels came and took and killed my dad, right? It is unbelievable. For me, that was when I was like, oh, this Christian God is legit. Like, if this God is going to do this for me and protect me and be there for me, I think I choose him, right? Um, and that was at six years old, right? And I think that, like, at that point, as much as a six-year-old can get, I mean, all this stuff is happening, but it took me years to unpack it all. Um, I think the, sure. the final turning point – oh, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, sure, of course, that would have a, an emotional long-term effect on anyone, let alone a six-year-old. Yeah, so I think it took me a while to even unpack it all as it was happening. Um, and the other thing, too, that was like interesting with Faith is um, I, I started to recognize, I didn't know it, was, I didn't know it as privilege, right? And I'm going to use that word a lot today because we're talking about language, but I didn't know it was privilege that I got to get out of Liberia, right? Like, I mm-hmm. remember my grandmom putting all her children together and all her grandkids and saying, war is coming. They killed my brother. War is coming. This isn't good. Let's get out, right? Well, all my other family members were like, no. My parents were like, no, well, you take Henry, right? So that it was a privilege that I got out. So even though I'm a child of civil war, I never physically got to see any fighting. I never got to see any people being killed in front of me. But the one that actually hit me recently was is a passage in 1 John where John says, you know, we need to live in love like Jesus in 1 John 3 because we've passed from death to life. And I think for a lot of us, we spiritualize that. It's like, yeah, we're spiritually dead and, you know, now we're alive, which I think is a good translation. But it just hit me recently, though, that like we all have things that we need to die to. But we all experience death in many different ways. And we need, because we're living, because we're alive, because we have the love of God in us, we need to love people and love our world around us and show what God looks like because we pass from death to life. And what hit me is during this time um, in refugee camps, when I was a refugee, all my cousins who stayed back got trapped. So they got to see war. They got to see suffering. They got to know hunger. And in fact, my best friend was one of my first cousins, was my best friend. So my family calls me HB, which are my initials, and he was AB. And I remember my cousin actually dying of starvation, right? Because the food was cut off during the war. And I remember being in a refugee camp and not knowing what to do with this as a six-year-old and taking my, my measly rations for the day digging a hole in the ground and, and putting food in the ground and covering it back up just because I was like, I don't want him to be hungry anymore, right? So mm-hmm. it's like I have passed from death to life. But I think none of this was really codified until later. I would say the moment where I decided to follow Jesus probably when I was about nine years old, where I made the decision and actually asked for forgiveness of my sins, where I moved from this God's amazing, he's going to take care of me, to like, 
God, I need you to save me, right? Yeah. Um, or to save me from my sins or to give me this new life and tell me, tell me who Jesus is was probably when I was about nine years old. And I remember that I had always been really sharp in Sunday school, was reading very young. I don't know if it's because my parents were scared I was going to be a Muslim, but they taught me a lot of Bible stories. So I was basically like your typical Sunday school all-star, right? And I remember it was after one of our Sunday school um, classes, and we had, I, I hadn't told anyone this, but I'd been struggling with, with sleeping. And part of the reason is because I realized that if I go to sleep and I don't wake up, right, like I would go to hell, right? Sure. Back then, that was my, my, my entire mindset, right? And I was terrified of going to sleep. And it's funny because to this day, I still just crash. I never just go to sleep. I just crash at night, right? And I think it's all from this time. And I'm nine years old and I'm in a Sunday school class. And I don't know if it was the Romans Road or what we did, but that morning we were talking about David and God protecting us and God being with us. And then there was this idea is like, so we all need to pledge to give our lives to God and, and ask Jesus to forgive our sins. And I was just like, wait, that's all we have to do and we'll be saved? They're like, yeah, man, Romans 10, 9, or, you know? And I was like, okay. I remember bowing my head and praying and I'm like, I think I'm saved now. I remember when I told my Sunday school teacher, like he, I think there was two of them, they were both shocked. Because they just assumed I'd always done this. That was the Sunday school all-star. But at that point, I had never made that decision, right? So I think for me, that was my introduction to faith. To speed it up a little bit, I grew up in a Plymouth Brethren church, which in a weird way, I think, prepared me to be an Anabaptist because I grew up from 9 to about 21. My primary church experience involved every week for an hour focusing on who Jesus is, what Jesus means to you. Like, yeah. what did Jesus show you this week? Now, Anabaptists, to, sh to shorten it up, or basically, we look at Matthew 5 to 7 as a canon within the canon. We believe that if Jesus is the full revelation of God, the rest of Scripture is great. But what Jesus says, that's what we're going to try to follow. So I think even my Plymouth Brethren background kind of prepared me to be an Anabaptist because my whole life then, I grew up thinking, who is Jesus? What does he mean to me? What does Jesus say? What did he say to me that week? So I would say that's my introduction to faith. Um, I think that I grew up in the church. My teenage years were, again, Plymouth Brethren, but I always had different influences and streams. You know, I was still Liberian, so I would go to a Liberian church. I had friends who were Pentecostal Assemblies of God, so I went there for youth group. Um, and then I had, yeah, so it's just, it's, and I went to Messiah College, which is an Anabaptist school traditionally, and was privileged to actually take Bible classes because of my major was marketing, but I had a lot of empty credits I needed to fill. So I chose Bible classes and really grew there. So I don't know if that answers the question, but I would say that brings you from about birth to about 21, 22, right? That completely answers the question in one of the most interesting stories I think I've ever experienced. Yeah, that was the abbreviated version, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy one. Which is awesome. And, and maybe at another point we can dive into that a little bit deeper. Um, but yeah, uh, our topic today on the dismantle is this idea of common language. Uh, one, of, one of the worst experiences someone can have, I think, is trying to articulate their views and their beliefs and end up entering into a debate with somebody, not necessarily because they disagree with them, but because they're not using the same vernacular. Hank, what's your experience with something like that? Yeah, I mean, I think even worse than a vernacular is sometimes we use the same vernacular, but we have different meanings, right? Like mm. I think trickiest part because like I mean I, I get where you're coming from in the sense of like hey we're not using the same vernacular we're not necessarily disagreeing but I think what's even trickier in my experience is we say the same words so when we talk about racism we talk about privilege 
We talk about um, America, right? We talk about Christian nation, right? Like, so I can say Christian nation and someone could think I'm talking about America, but I might really be talking about the kingdom of God that has, you know, disciples in every nation, every tribe, every tongue, right? So for me, that's the trickiest part of it is when we use the same words, but we have different meanings based on our experience, based on our um, education, based on our who we're submitting to, right? Like our, our point of reference is source. So I think for me, for example, our church is a multicultural church and we're very passionate about, you know, this revelation that God gave to John, this, you know, prophecy that God blessed Isaiah with, right? Like the peoples of the earth are going to stream to the mountain of the Lord and, and the kingdom supposed to be every nation, every tribe, every tongue, Right. Well, when people hear we're a multicultural church, they assume that like this is a 2018 thing. This is a new age fad that we're trying to do. When we take a step back and we're like, no, 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 no. This actually begins in Genesis and it's through Revelation, right? Like mm-hmm. the kingdom's always been diverse. And that whether you're starting in Genesis or the early church or what we look like in Revelation, this idea that we all go to church to people who look like us, right, is a very modern invention. Yeah. Right? Like the early church was a diverse place. The nation of Israel was diverse. Like one of the things I tell people is like, look at David's mighty men. Look at all the places they're from. Right. Look at the kingdom of Israel and all the different people who come to it, whether it's Sheba or, you know, like you look at Jehoshaphat. Like there's tons of experiences in the Old Testament or even with the prophets who are dealing with people from all these different places who come to Israel. Like. Um, Isaiah doesn't say the God, God doesn't give Isaiah, like my house should be a house of prayer for all the people who look like me or for all the Israelites, right? My house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. So, so I think for me, my experience comes with more, we use the same language, but we mean different things. So when I say multiculturalism, some people might hear this is a new age fad, but for me, I'm like, no, 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 no. This is what the kingdom's always been like, right? This is what the kingdom is even in Israel, right? So one of the ways we always point people is go to Exodus. In Sunday school, we learn God saved the Israelites and he, he brought them out of Egypt, right? But we tend to think of those Israelites as just Jewish people by heritage. But there's a verse at the end of Exodus 12 where you realize like, no, and all the other people who believed. So what you realize is that the people of God from the very beginning have always been by belief and not by heritage, so even our idea of what Israel is in Egypt, right, and what Israel is in the wilderness and what Israel is in the nation of Israel is not just this heritage. It's about belief. So that's, for me, that's fascinating. That's the tricky part is that we can use the same words, right, and mean totally different things. I can say Israel and you might think Jewish. And I'm like, well, what about the Egyptians who believed and joined them? What about the other slaves from different tribes and tongues who joined them and became part of this nation? What about David's kingdom that was in Solomon's kingdom in all its glory that had all these different people represented in it, right? What about the temple, which was Israel in all its glory and was a house of prayer for all the nations? What about Jesus flipping tables, not just because he was mad that they were cheating, but he was mad that they were cheating immigrants and refugees and women and the least of these, right? Like he was mad because his house was a, it became a den of thieves and not a house of prayer for all the people, right? So there's tons of language that we use, but again, like, are we meaning the same thing? Where do you think, like, do you think you can pinpoint where this issue began? Like, where did we start with this dissonance of using similar and, and identical words, but meaning different things? So I would say that it's always been part of the human experience. I just think that like it might seem more amplified because we're one more connected than ever. And we 
it's easier to find similar voices, right? Like I, I always tell this story about how when I was in fifth grade in North Jersey, we had um, a pen pal project, but it was a video thing where we basically went around, said your name, your favorite food, and what you like to do in your family. And we shot it on a cam, uh, a video, um, VHS really. And then we mailed it to Japan, I believe, right? And this was in September. And we didn't hear back from our, our Japanese video pals till June, right? So, and that's not even that long ago, right? Like, yeah. this is, I mean, it's early 90s. So yeah, it is long ago. But it just shows you that like technology has amplified everything. So for me, it's, I would say it's always been a, a, a key facet of the human experience, right? But that's why I think relationships matter. That's why I think true conversations matter. That's why I think this mantle matters, right? Because you need to be able to break down and say, but what do you mean? So for example, in the church, like I would say that most of the church right, today looks more like Jerusalem when I think the highlight of the church is really Antioch, right? Jerusalem was a, 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 a almost... I don't say fascinated sounds almost too positive, but Jerusalem was all about like culture and holding on to their Jewish identity within Christianity and holding on to me and mine and who's close to me. Where Antioch was where Paul learned about the faith. Antioch was who sent out the first uh, missionaries. Antioch was a place where Jewish and also quote unquote Gentile widows were cared for. Right. And I think we were meant to be Antioch. But we've all chosen Jerusalem because Jerusalem's easy, right? It's very easy to, to go with people who are my tribe, who agree with me, than to be with people who disagree with me on something, right? And to be people who are different than me in their experience. So, I mean, I would say the problems always existed. I would say it's just amplified in our modern culture. And I think the other part about it is it's easier to amplify it and be wrong and be okay with being wrong, right? So, for example... If you and I pull 10 people and ask them what racism is, right, we might get 10 different answers. But what's crazy is those 10 people all think they're right. Hmm. You know? And they might be diametrically opposed in what they're saying, but they'll all believe they're right. Now, as a pastor, I'm sure this manifests itself within the church. Uh, we, we touched on racism. I mean, you're, you're, you're blowing my mind with the things that you're sharing. How have you noticed this issue best manifest itself within a church, the church, or even your church? All right. So, I mean, a little bit about my story is that like, so you talk about language, right? So one of the things that I couldn't necessarily codify or properly process was somewhere along the line. So I actually did a whole presentation at a college on this about how I am Liberian, right? I'm a, a sons of former slaves, not just African-Americans, but slaves who went back to Africa and came back here. But I had to learn how to be African-American. And what I meant by that is that, like, I had to learn what does America look at me and see me as as a black person. And it was tricky because I'm coming from severe privilege, right? When I came to America, people would be like, what's the biggest difference? Like, you're not living in a hut. And I was just like, dude, even when I was in a refugee camp, I wasn't in a hut, right? Like, like I was very <laughs> Kid. Like, I had a butler, for goodness sakes, right? Like, the biggest difference for me is that, like, if almost if you pictured, um, there used to be an old Eminem commercial where the Eminem see Santa and they both were shocked and, like, huh, they do exist, right? But for me, that experience was with white people because at that point I'd only seen white people on TV. So walking around, I'm like, oh my gosh, they're real, right? Like, they do exist, right? Um, but I think that, like, in growing up in America, I had somehow adopted how America sees me, right? And I knew that, like, for some reason I was a threat. 
for some reason I wasn't equal and for some reason that like I needed to always be better than, right? That I couldn't afford to be average because people would look down upon me. So somewhere I adopted this language in my head that like I needed to win people over, right? And that's how I approached white people. That's how I approached people who were different than me. That's how I approached um, everyone like that was different than me is like, I'm black. You don't really like black people. I need to be better. I need to be the best black person I can be. And it wasn't until after college, one of my best friends says, is like, why do you need to win people over? Right. And that kind of got me thinking that, like, where have I picked this up from? And another personal experience was, you know, the first time I dated someone who was outside of my race. Right. That was a very, very hard situation because it was the first time I saw Christians like saying things and, and and doing things that I would consider very, very wrong. And I think anyone would consider very, very wrong. But for me, it wasn't that I hadn't experienced this kind of hatred or racism from white people before, but I never gotten it from people who consider themselves strong Christians. And I'm telling you, man, that threw my whole life for a loop, right? Wow. Like, that was just like, oh my gosh, like, but I know you, but I've preached at your church, but I, I've been okay before, like... Now I'm not because I'm dating your daughter. Like all that stuff was a mess for me, right? So I think that like when I came out of that situation, I realized two things is that one, I love God, but two, I don't love the church. And and if there's an addendum to that is I really am scared of white people because now I'm looking at the history of oppression. I'm looking at the history of, you know, all the stuff that's happened, all the stuff that I try to ignore by being the best black person I can be was now realizing I'll never be good enough, Right. Now, I will say part of my healing process was coming to our church, right? Like, I remember my first Sunday in our church, I had friends who were just like, Hank, all this stuff you're talking about race and the church and how we can be better. This church is really trying to do it, right? And I remember because of not just language, but perspectives, I remember looking on their website and somehow I found out that the lead pastor was an old white man, right? Which was a trigger to me because I had just been basically racially abused by an old white man, right? But like, it was an old white man. He was from the South. And I was just like, you tell me a Southerner is leading a multicultural church? Like, I don't buy it. Anymore, right? like, and, but God has a sense of humor, right? Now I'm saying like, oh yeah, you will go to this church. But then he will mentor you, and then one day you'll follow him in the pulpit, right? Like, but none of this came all at once. But I remember sitting in church, and they said, "Hey, Sunday morning we're going to have a class where we're going to talk about race and the church. But more than that, we're going to make it personal. We're going to talk about how you're black, you're white, you're Asian, you're Latino, and for some reason we're really bad at being brothers and sisters in Christ and being a true body of Christ. For some reason, we're choosing our own tribe or what we look like, or our own privileges." over sacrificing that privilege and truly being the body of Christ and members of one another. I remember sitting next to my now wife and we were in dating at the time and I just remember saying it out loud because I was so shocked that the church was saying this from up front. I remember telling her and I was just like, these white people are crazy. Like they want me to talk about how white Christians have hurt me. This is insane, right? Um, so yes, I think that like one way I've seen this so effective is a church that's willing to not just have these conversations, but challenge people and, and say we need to grow. And to say that all of us have um, not just mistakes that we make, but all of us have wrong mindset. But what does it mean to get back to what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5 about this ministry of reconciliation? What does it mean to no longer look at you as the world looks at you, right? What does it mean to no longer look down upon you like the world looks down upon you? What does it mean to say we are ambassadors of Christ together? What does it mean when Jesus says, you know, you are the light of the world? One of the things we always tell people is that 
we all say the Lord's Prayer, but do we really believe the Lord's Prayer? Because most Christians agree that when we get to heaven, we're not going to say, hey, the Baptists over there, you know, the Episcopalians over there, Catholics over there, you know, the the, the Anabaptists over here. Most of us know we're all going to be intermingled, right? And most of us are okay with that. But if we really believe the Lord's Prayer, then Jesus has this one line that to this day always, it, it both terrifies me and excites me. But he says, right, on earth as it is in heaven, right? So we're not just supposed to dream of heaven, right? We are supposed to be working for heaven. That's the Lord's Prayer, is that we're working to make on earth as it is in heaven our reality, right? And if you get even deeper, one of the things you'll see in scripture is that heaven always comes down, right? So... Mm been really really fascinating to me in some of this and why i do some of this work and why i want to get to know people and connect and challenge them is because i realized that like you know heaven always has to come down but we are all like jesus before he left jesus one of the things that blows my mind is god created the world from no point of reference right he spoke it into existence and it was good in his eyes right but one of the things that's crazy to me is that he's been working on heaven, <laughs> you know, like, like it's just it's mind blowing. Right. So that's Jesus's work right now. What he's left behind is the church and the spirit. And before he left, he looked at the church and says, you are the light of the world. So for me, where we see darkness, we're supposed to be the light. Where we see brokenness, we're supposed to be the ones who are mending it. Where we see um, struggle, we're supposed to be the ones who are reconciling. Right. So for me, the problem is that, like, the church has not taken this mantle of on earth as it is in heaven, which is why common language is the problem. Which is why I would much rather go with Joey who agrees with me on what this is than my brother who disagrees with me and have that conversation with him and not just look for a common ground, but to look at how I'm valuing him as a person, or I'm valuing her as a sister, right? Like, we're not doing the work because I would say, sadly, in America, we have the privilege to not do the work, right? I have the privilege to stay in, it sounds harsh, but I have the privilege to stay in my ignorance, right? I have the privilege to stay in, like, well, this is my understanding, or that's just how I see it, right? Yeah. I have a privilege to stay in my um, cocoon or my silo. See, I, I live in farm country, right? So you might be in a more suburban or urban setting that you don't know what a silo is, right? But Christianity is not meant to be silos. We're not meant to save up all the goods, put it in this bin and build it up to the sky, right? Like we're meant to feed the people and to spread the love of God. And, and where, where people don't know love, like if people don't know what God's love feels like, that's not God's fault. That's the church's fault. That's our fault, right? So for me, that's the call, right? Like how do we leave the silos and start spreading that love around? I think one of the ways we do it is building relationships. And one of the ways you build relationship is not just adapting a common language, but working through where we differ and, and, and coming to where we need to grow. What's our growing points for all of us? Yeah, and that's really the point of, uh, or it should be the point of the church as a whole, but more specifically the point of this show where we can get people with differing ideas on to discuss, but all of it's with the intention to equip and and help the church in its blind spot. Mm -hmm. uh, and you touched on something very interesting. I, I'd love for you to unpack it a little bit. What do you think the role of preference plays within our churches? Oh, it's huge, man. I mean, I think that like, here's the thing. So naturally we all are going to go for preference, right? Like that's your natural thing. For example, like I love 
chocolate, right? Like, there's no point where if you made me the choice between chocolate and kale, where I will choose and prefer kale over chocolate. There's no point, right? Right. But if you tell me kale might be best for me, like, I might need to sacrifice my privilege and my preference to do what's best for me, right? But I think what's hard for us as the church in North America is that, one, we don't want to sacrifice our privilege and preference. Two, privilege and preference is easier. And three, it hurts, right? It hurts to know that, like, like, sacrifice is a great word in Christianity, except when we try to do it, right? Hmm. Like, sacrifice is wonderful and it sounds so biblical until you try to do it, right? Or until you feel called and compelled to do it, which if we go back to that 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says Christ's love compels us, right? So again, we should be compelled to do it. So I think that like, so this is one of the points we might disagree, right? Like, I think one of the things that's really, really hard for us to realize is that ever since the beginning, like we as mankind, we as people have always used God like for our own ends and means, right? We've always created God in our own image, right? And rubber stamped and used them to rubber stamp some great evil sometimes, right? So if you look at the history of this country, like there's people who will say America's always been a Christian nation. And then there's some of us who will be like, but when did they look like Christ, right? Like, like, when did Christ enslave? Like, when did Christ oppress every single minority group, right? We're one that, like, we're, we're really fascinating as a country because there's not a minority group that did not face oppression in this quote-unquote Christian land, right? Now, I'm not just talking about Native Americans. I'm not just talking about slavery. But, like, I have friends who are Irish, and they can tell horror stories about being Irish in New York, right? I have friends who are Italian, and they can tell horror stories about that. I have friends who are Japanese who go back two or three generations who were put in internment camps. I have friends and, and tons of people who are women who will tell you about, like, all the ways they feel oppressed, right? Like, and we're supposed to be the Christian nation, right? So I think that's one of the things that's really fascinating when I talk to people and I say that, like, this is why I choose the kingdom. One of my favorite people in the world right now is a rapper, Chance the Rapper, right? And I don't think he's an Anabaptist. I, maybe he is, or maybe he is and he doesn't know. But his one of his biggest songs, he begins his verse with, don't believe in kings, believe in the kingdom. And I think what makes it hard to sacrifice our privilege is that like we are choosing kings and not the kingdom. And if you look at it biblically, this is what's always been done. Right. Like it's always been easy for God's people to choose kings instead of the king of kings. Right. To mm. choose um, their own personal kingdom and making God in their own image instead of Jesus and who Jesus is and who Jesus compels us to be. Right. So for me, like when we think about how do you sacrifice this privilege or how do you sacrifice this preference? One of the things I think people need to recognize is that you do have privilege and preference. And it comes in all different ways, right? There's a lot of people who be like, well, my family worked hard and, and I've never experienced anything. And I just give different examples. So for example, one of the most um, eye-opening moments of my life was in high school, right? When I realized that being a man is a privilege in this culture because there's just certain things that happen that like I never have to worry about. So for example, I was in ninth or 10th grade. I was walking down the hallway with a good friend of mine and my school was, I mean, it was built like an E, right? And it had levels. So you would just go down your corridor, go down the next corridor. And I remember, like, I said bye to her and I was walking to my class. And as she started walking, she froze. And I looked up and there was a majority of the football team was around the one corridor. And I looked over and I was just like, what is she doing? Did she forget something? But when I looked at her eyes, I saw terror in her eyes, right? And I was just like, what is happening? Like, so I walked over. I was like, hey, are you Okay. 
And she's just like, hey, um, this is going to sound really, really stupid, but can you please walk me to class? Like, I just don't want to walk through that group of football players, right? And, like, I'm just like, wait, what? And I just shut up and walked her to class. And while I'm walking, it hits me, right? Like, it's broad daylight. It's the middle of the school day. We're in the middle of school. But yet she, as a woman, like, felt scared to walk just the class in the middle of that. Flip it with me being a guy, right? In ninth or 10th grade, if I'm going to go to class and there's 15 cheerleaders who are around the corner on my way to class, that is not like a scary thing, right? To me, that's a plus. That's an amazing thing. That's an opportunity. Yeah, I'll do some quick math and be like, listen, all I need is one out of 15 to think I'm cute, right? Like, make sure I look good and I'll walk right through, right? So when we talk about privilege, one of the things I think people need to realize is that we all have inherent privileges. Like, the goal, I think, to be a Christian, I think what Paul talks about a lot that we don't tap into is we're called to sacrifice those privileges for the sake of our brothers and sisters. John, who I would argue is Jesus's best friend, right? The disciple that Jesus loved, the one who Jesus is dying for the sins of the world and says, Jesus, like John, behold your mother. Please take care of my moms. I'm going to heaven, right? Mary, this is now your son. As an elder son, this was supposed to be my job, but I got to go to heaven. So John's going to take care of you, right? Like John, who knew Jesus in essence was out, says, in whom there was no sin, who quantified God as love, he looked at Jesus and only saw love. Well, John is the one who keeps calling us to live and love like Jesus, right? The same intimate relationship John had with Jesus, what he wants us to have, and he calls us to love. But the only way we can love is by loving our brothers and sisters. And one of the ways you love your brothers and sisters is recognizing the privileges you might have and sacrificing it. So for me, it was a small sacrifice that day. I was late to class, right? I was friends with most of the football team. It wasn't a big deal, right? But I had to sacrifice and realize that like for her, this is terrifying. And I think one of the things that common language, by not embracing it and getting to a point where we all agree on the same thing, one of the things we have to be willing to do as a church, as Christians, as people, is to not just say, oh, you're wrong because you're using this word or you're using it this way. But we have to get back to the basics of Christianity, which says, when you hurt, I hurt. Right? Like, it's not just mm-hmm. about what I get out of it or, or what I support or what I think is best. But, like, fundamentally, if this hurts my brother or sister, it also hurts me. Right? And I think that changes not just how I vote, but it changes how I interact, right? Because voting in an essence is not a kingdom endeavor, right? Like you're voting for an empire. You're not really voting for the kingdom of God. You and I don't get to sit together and vote on who's the best Christian or who's allowed in, right? Like we vote for empires, right? But I think Jesus always calls us to his kingdom and not the empire. And if we're choosing the kingdom, then we're choosing people. And if we're choosing people, then we're sacrificing whatever privileges we have. If we're sacrificing whatever privileges we have, we're loving. And if we're loving, we're connecting with brothers and sisters who are different than us, who have not just different perspectives, but they say, no, 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 I'm hurting right now. And I think our reaction shouldn't be like, well, pull yourself up, right? So one of the things I would tell people is like, I have a four-year-old daughter and a two-year-old daughter. If my four-year-old scrapes her knee badly, right, like, I don't say, hey, here's $20. I hope that that makes it feel better, right? Um, But I also don't yell at her and say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's just a scraped knee, right? And I think that a lot of times that's our default, and that's not Christianity, right? Like, no father looks at his two-year-old or three-year-old or four-year-old and say, hey, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Why are you hurting? Right. And no good father says, hey, here's twenty dollars. I'm sorry, your knees bleeding. Right. What do you have to do? 
You have to get down. You have to comfort. You have to clean the wound. You have to bandage the wound. And you have to love, right? And another thing that might be helpful to flesh some of this out is, you know, when you're walking around the house and you stub your toe, you don't go, man, 98% of my body feels great, right? Like my elbow's really working great today. My knee, I'm so grateful for my knee, you know? Like, or you don't yell at your toe and be like, toe, why are you hurting? Or toe, pick yourself up. Right. Dollars, right? No, your entire focus goes to that hurt area. And I think one of the things about commonality and being the body of Christ that'll challenge us to do is making our focus go to people who are hurting, people who are marginalized, right? And I had a friend who was a doctor who's much smarter than me says, you know, Hank, that's why like swelling is so compelling. And I was like, what are you talking about? Swelling? He's like, yeah, you know the beautiful thing about swelling? And I was like, no, I do not. He goes, when you stub your toe and it's a really bad stub and it's swelling, like it might look nasty on the outside, it might be dirty and murky or whatever, but that's your body's natural reaction to protect that hurt area. And I was like, oh my gosh, that is beautiful, right? Like when we see people who are hurting, is our natural reaction to protect them? Is our natural reaction to stand up for them? Or is our natural reaction to, to sit back in our privilege and our preference and choose what's best for us? What would you say, I mean, there, there's so much to kind of digest, and this is probably going to be an episode where I personally go back and listen two, three, four, five times, um, <laughs> but what would you say, maybe it's maybe it's preference, maybe it's um, privilege, maybe it's uh, sacrifice, what, yeah. what would you say is a great first step? Because I know a lot of people within the church, and my own personal experience, we look at all the things within the Bible, we look at all the ways that we can engage in the things that we should do, and then it becomes a paradox of choice where we're like, well, there's so much, so I'm just not going to do any of it. So what would be like a, a great first step to, to move forward with this common language understanding? I think one of it is that we need connection points, right? Like... The great thing about all of us is that, well, there's two things, right? And I think it goes to your biological, how you're made up, right? The first one is no one, like, completely learns something that's new without a base of understanding, right? Like, you have to have, like, a good teacher doesn't say, hey, kindergarten, I'm glad you know the alphabet. Tomorrow we'll do E equals MC squared, right? Like, we skip some steps in there, right? Like, the kids will be like, wait, what? E? M doesn't come after E? What are you talking about, right? So I think that's one thing is that, like, we need to build from a common, under, like, a base level of understanding, right? So that's the first thing. The other one that's more biological is that, honestly, man, we don't care until we care. So, for example, if I drive a black Toyota, when you and I get behind the wheel, Joey, and we're driving in Harrisburg or Jersey or New York, how many black Toyotas will I notice? All of them, right? Like I would just notice every single black Toyota. If you and I got together and we went to the Mall of America and you were wearing, you know, a blue shirt, right? It looks like a blue T-shirt with a pink monkey on it, right? Like you will notice every single person wearing a blue shirt with a pink monkey and I will not, right? Like one another common one is when people find out I'm from Liberia, right? For the rest of their life, they will hear Liberia more than they've ever had before, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the ways we're built is that we don't really care until we care. So I think when you combine the two, that's how you get to that first step, right? 
What is the common base of understanding that I have and how can I grow it, right? And then how do I get proximity or close enough so that I can really, really care about this? So for example, I grew up thinking, you know, welfare was terrible and people are stealing from the system until I found out that like, you know, my friends are on welfare and then I'm on welfare and then like the creation of suburbs was government money, right? So there's all this stuff that I was just like battling with, with like, wait, what am I supposed to do with all this? Proximity helps, right? And I think, so I would say for first step is all of us need to like, if you're a reader, for example, look at your bookshelf, right? If your bookshelf is all white men, like upgrade your bookshelf, right? Get some women on there, get some people of color on there because you need to introduce yourself to different ways of thinking, different ideas, different perspectives. There's a brilliant guy by the name of Andrew Walls who talks about how as Christians, you know, we have time and time is this whole Jesus play that's going on and we're all in the auditorium. The problem with the auditorium is you can only see from your seat. And if you want to get the full show, you need perspectives from people all around the auditorium, right? If I'm up front in the first row, I'm not going to see someone, I'm not going to see more of the big picture of someone on the top row. But a person on the top row might not hear the dialogue as better as best as I can, right? So we need each other, but we need different perspectives. I say if you're a reader, diversify your book collection. Get people who you don't agree with, but read them to be introduced to them. I think another one is put yourself under leadership of people who are different than you. My, you know, my wife is white and from farm country. I'm urban and black and African from like Philadelphia, you know? But one of the things that was fascinating when we had kids, my wife was very, very insistent that our daughters have pediatricians that were women or people of color, right? Like she was very, very insistent that they saw people who looked like them who were doing not just positive things, but different things. And this was normalized because one of the things that I've learned about white America is that like for a lot of white people, for example, their interaction with people of color is usually limited to what they see on TV, right? What they see in sports, what they see in movies or like what they catch in media or the news, right? Because there's no proximity in relationship. They don't have a relationship with people who are close to them. So I think that's the next one. Like, obviously, you don't, I don't want you going down the street and finding a black and Latino or Asian person, but like, Hank says, I need a black friend. Can you be my black friend? Right? Like, I don't think that's the answer, but I do think, though, building relationships and finding out where people are and trying to connect to people who are different than you, proximity helps. And proximity is what is going to make some of this stuff make sense because. I might not really care about like so for example I never understood the ostracization of Mary as you know the mother of Jesus right yeah we believe in the virgin birth and all that but she was still a young probable teenage mother in a society where you know like that would be looked down very strongly upon right I was in Colombia you know and I I actually took a, a group and we were doing work at a, a teen pregnancy center, right? And I remember hearing their stories of ostracization from their family and being kicked out and trying to do what's right and bring a baby into this world and, and never being accepted by a family except from this one Christian nonprofit that was housing all of them. And I remember almost being in tears because I told them and I was just like, I know Colombia is a very Catholic country and you guys believe in, you know, like you look at Mary maybe a little bit different than I do, but I had never understood Mary until I met all of you guys. And now I'm able to understand that, yes, she was the mother 
of God. Yes, she was, you know, the blessed virgin, but she also had to face this human condition that you guys are going in. And if, if she was loved by God perfectly, I want you guys to know that you're loved by God, no matter what everyone's done to you or said, right? Mm-hmm. Powerful moment for them to hear, you know, someone affirm that God loves them because they had been ostracized and kicked out by their own families, right? And I was convicted because I was like, how many times when I hear teen mothers that I grew up thinking, oh, well, they messed up or they're just out here living wrong and blah, 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 right? But I'm sitting in this room of these young women who are trying to get their life together and do what's right. And all they had was horror stories. And I was like, most of them grew up in the church, right? So I think proximity helps us and and finding ways, right? There's always going to be things that you can do. Like technology is a great thing. Like find people and voices you learn, you can learn and listen to. Podcasts you can listen to. I mean, we live in a day and age where you can get a sermon or a podcast or music from anywhere in the world, right? Just available online. So I think that like one of the things that privilege doesn't force us to do, privilege forces us to be comfortable. Sacrifice forces us to do work, right? Like one of the things that we have to be willing to do is do the work, right? Like instead of finding a black friend that you're going to be like, hey, um, I am really struggling with this flag thing, right? Like I'm really struggling with people who are disrespecting the flag. Like, like do some research as to like why are black people actually angry and why it's not really about the flag, right? Like all these quote unquote hot button topics, like like immigration, no matter what you think on immigration, don't just listen to people who are like you or who believe you. Try to listen to people on the other side. And again, I'm not saying that you always agree with them, but I'm saying that other perspective is going to make you more nuanced. And if you're more nuanced, I believe it's going to be easier to adapt the posture of Christ and to choose love and to choose how to to fight for those marginalized people when you're able to make the proximity, right? So for me, is increasing your knowledge base, right? Like looking at your bookshelf, looking at your movies, looking at the people you respect, looking at the people you learn from, right? Like the people you go to for your mechanic or your doctor or your pastor or your elders, like make sure it's people who are diverse and different than you, like be intentional about that. But then that other part is proximity. Is there a work going on in your community that you can support, right? Is there something that's already happening that you can say, you know what, I think this is wrong and I want to help give my voice to it, or I just want to sit there quietly and support. I think proximity has got to be the key. And I think we as Christians are called to the margins, right? Like there's a reason why the church grows among the marginalized, because when people know all they have is Jesus, it's very easy for them to sacrifice that privilege and hold on to Jesus, right? But when we keep holding on to privileges and and we keep holding on to all the me and mine, Right. I would argue if your life is only about me and mine, you don't look like Christ. Right. And I think Jesus, a couple of times in the Gospels, Jesus makes a pretty harsh accusations uh, where he says, like, you know, like, let your yes be yes and no be no, which is Christians. We love because we're like, yeah, that means we should be truthful. People of integrity don't swear like all that. But the next verse, Jesus says, because if it's not, you look like your father, the devil, right? And in 1 John, John talks about that a lot, about how if we're not living and loving like Christ, right, do we really belong to Christ or do we belong to the father of lies, the father, the devil, right? So Mm -hmm. I think that's why all of this is important. Like, it's not just about language and it's not just about margins, is if you're not living and loving like Christ, you're looking like Satan, That's the only two options Jesus gives us. And I would argue John, who knows Jesus best, that's the only two options. He says, this is what I learned from Jesus. I'm sharing with you. You either look like Jesus or you look like the devil. There's no in between. 
right? So when we look at any issue, any issue, any person, anything, I think our question should always be like, am I looking like Jesus in this? Because I would argue that Jesus says, if your yes is not yes and you don't look like me, you're not looking like me, you're looking like Satan. And I think that should be motivation enough outside of the fact that we should love, right? Right. Uh, uh, underarching that entire theme, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Hank, it has been an amazing time being able to spend with you and, and pick your brain on this topic. Uh, and as we come to a close, where can people find you online? Um, maybe something that you're really enjoying uh, in culture, maybe a book you're reading, a podcast, a movie, something like that. Oh, man. Um, I mean, I think... I would always invite you at your own peril, right? I am on Instagram, so that's more PG because it's just family and pictures and food, right? I think it's just Hank259. I'm also on Twitter, which gets me in a lot of trouble, but it's fun, right? So <laughs> you can also find me on Twitter. My name is the same thing, Hank259. So H-A-N-K-259. Um, would love to interact with you. I, I'm i an Anabaptist, so I tend to pick on every kind of politics. It doesn't matter what kind of politics. I don't think if it, if it doesn't look like the kingdom, I'll say something. Um, and some people like that. Some people don't. So find me there. I will say, though, um, if there is one thing that I've really, really enjoyed, that might be a good first step for people, is I just recently finished a book by a lady named Austin Channing Brown. You can find her on Twitter at Austin Channing. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness. It is an amazing book. It's a great introduction. It's a chance for you to see, um, not just as a black person or a white person, but to see how privilege interacts in a different way. And again, to hear a different perspective, right? So I would advise everyone to go out and get that book now. Um, it's an easy read. It's a very convicting read. Um, I read it the whole time cheering. I felt like my sister was telling our story and I was just there clapping along and, and laughing and crying. And I just, it's a great, great book. It's called I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness, Austin Channing Brown. Please, please check it out. I think you'll love it. If you're brave enough, check me out on Twitter. Check me out on Instagram. I'd love to follow you there as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Hank, for making the time and being on the show. No problem, man. This is wonderful. That wraps up this episode of The Dismantle. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the topic today, your experience, or ways that we can continue to create community. Visit our website at dismantlepod.com. And until next time, don't complain about the things you're not willing to change. You've been listening to The Dismantle, creating community, not converts. Visit us at dismantlepod.com.